This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, now why don't we get started? Welcome, everybody. You're welcome. Um, yeah, so welcome to Labrie. This is the final lecture in our uh, fall series. So this is, uh, we won't be having a lecture next week. Our, our term will be over. And stay tuned if you live in the area. If you want to um, hear about future lectures, we'll be um, sending out our lecture schedule closer to the time when we know what it will be. That, that's a ways off for us. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, this this is kind of wrapping up <coughs> our fall term, and we'll be talking about art tonight. And whenever it's easy to feel a little bit like a fraud whenever I get up and talk about art, as in it's such a massive category, it's such um, it's so hard to say any one thing generally about all art. Uh, so just bear with me on, in that regard. Um, to some degree, have to speak in generalizations. But I want to start by asking you to picture a courtroom scene. If you ever watch <coughs> courtroom dramas on television, uh, the lawyer for the prosecution approaches the witness stand and says to the accused, I have a very simple question. Did you or did you not rob the Main Street Bank in Southboro at gunpoint on February 18th, 2022? And the accused responds, well, it's an interesting question. It depends on what you mean. Uh, I wouldn't say that I did not rob the bank, but am I a thief? I'm not really sure it would be fair to say that. I mean, am I a perfect person? No. Mistakes were made. If you knew the circumstances, you'd be asking different questions. Actually, you know what? Let me tell you a story about my cat to illustrate what I mean. <clears throat> So we're, we're talking about ambiguity this evening, and one definition of ambiguity goes like this, uh, doubtfulness or uncertainty of meaning or intention. So to be ambiguous is to avoid explicitness and clarity. Another illustration, if you unpack a big box from Ikea and you lay out all the parts for your new shelves or your new cabinet or whatever it is, then you open up the instructions and find that they're completely unclear. Uh, the illustrations are hard to decipher. They don't seem to correspond, obviously, to the objects in front of you. Uh, each step doesn't seem to follow from the step before. You'll be frustrated. And that's because assembling furniture is not the time for ambiguity. Um, instruction manual should communicate as clearly and as unambiguously as possible and it's the same with testifying in court. Uh, when testifying in court and when writing manuals, clarity is what's needed. 
There's no doubt that when straightforward clarity is necessary, ambiguity can be unhelpful or it can be actively deceptive, like, like my fictional uh, person on the stand there. Um, when ambiguity obscures the truth and the truth needs to be brought into the light, then ambiguity is not a good thing. I think we can, most of us could probably agree about that. But uh, testifying in court and writing instruction manuals are only two relatively narrow kinds of communication. There are many, many other things to say and many, many other ways to communicate. So I want to make the case that there are times and places where absolute clarity is actually not the most appropriate way to communicate. Sometimes, ironically, total precision in communication actually communicates less. Uh, of what needs to be said. I'm just going to adjust my light here, I'm sorry. That's better. And the reason for this is that there are complexities and mysteries and difficulties as well as joys in real life that cannot be adequately addressed with the kind of communication we find in an instruction manual. They just, it just is, it's, it's too complex, it's too rich, it's too mysterious. The world and the lives we live in the world are complicated. And our response to the world can be emotionally complicated. And this is, this is normal. <clears throat> and this is why I think the arts are so important. The art can actually say things that cannot be said in other ways. Art can handle complexity with sensitivity in a way that does justice to the way things really are in the world. So tonight I'm talking basically about how ambiguity is a, is a good thing, or can be a good thing, and a productive thing uh, for artists, for people that write songs, write poems, people that paint, people that make films, write stories. I'm talking very, again, I'm talking very generally, just the arts, so forgive me. Um, Specifically, I want to reflect on the ways in which ambiguity can make art hospitable to an audience. And I'll explain what I mean by hospitality as we go, but this may be a little counterintuitive to people because very often when we approach, say you walk into an art gallery and you find this piece hanging on the wall totally ambiguous, hospitality is not the thing that comes to mind. You feel like maybe the opposite, maybe a door is being slammed in your face. <laughs> you know? uh, but I want to, I want to just... Um, uh, explore this idea a little bit more and you don't have to agree with me about that at all. So, um, as an outline, it's really made two main parts. Uh, what do art, hospitality, and ambiguity have to do with each other? That's the main section. And then just some examples of what I would call productive ambiguity. Not all ambiguity is good. I mean, we, I think we've already established that. Um, but we can... Um, these are just a few kind of examples that I've, that I've thought of by artists that I happen to appreciate. Um, and uh, we'll get into that a little later. Before before we start digging into this, uh, I'm just going to make a note, really just make a, make a comment and then pass it by, uh, on some of the reasons why people view ambiguity with some suspicion. Uh, and this is something that... Uh, I think some some Christians particularly, but but probably uh, it's not just a Christian issue. It's probably uh, a lot of people view ambiguity in art with some suspicion. Uh, th- these are really the reasons why I was interested to do this talk. Um, but for the sake of time, we're just going to basically name them and pass by. So, first of all, um, 
One attitude is that art is view- when art is viewed primarily as a means of entertainment, ambiguity is not valued. So ambiguity demands a kind of engagement which is asking too much from someone who just wants to passively consume, you know, films or whatever. Um, and, you know, a, a more ambiguous, enigmatic work of art can get the response, uh, what? Whatever. So the what, whatever response is like, eh, I don't get it. Never mind. It's not, I don't have time for this. You know, so that's, that's, that's definitely a response that can happen at any point. <laughs> the what, whatever response. We'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, if you, if you, if you're, if you're, if you view the art as, as basically something to consume passively for the sake of entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but if that's, if that's the only way you view art, then, uh, art that is deeply ambiguous and demands a little bit more attention from you is, is not going to really appeal very much. Um, secondly, there's a particular kind of utilitarian view of art, <clears throat> that also has no use for ambiguity. Uh, in this view, the only purpose of art is to basically be didactic, to, to instruct, to teach something very clear. Uh, for Christian people, this is often taken the form of, of art for evangelism's sake. You know, um, Art has doesn't really have an inherent value, but only has a purpose if it can be shown to clearly teach Christian ideas. So the medium is only really a vehicle for the message, which is the main thing. And in this view, there really should be no functional difference between a painting and a sermon, a song and a tract, a poem and an elevator pitch. There's, um, and so all those particular crafts, poetry, songwriting, painting, are simply a means to an end, and they, they don't have much value in themselves. And I would say this was a this is a utilitarian view. In other words, art is only good if it has a very specific use, and it's didactic use. In other words, it needs to be teaching you, instructing something. And again, for art to have some sort of didactic didactic role is not necessarily a bad thing. But that, if that's all that art ever is, and if by didactic we mean it, it communicates with absolute clarity exactly what you're supposed to think, then that maybe is more of a problem. So within this view, ambiguity also has no place because uh, being clear and communicating with absolute clarity is really the goal. Lastly, uh, there is, I think, for many people, I, I would say a justified suspicion that um, the postmodern assumptions that have sort of become normal within the contemporary art world, namely that to convey real meaning for the artist, um, meaning that can be communicated from an artist to an audience is kind of uh, impossible. Everyone brings their own meaning to every piece of art and constructs it themselves, uh, and they come away with what with what the work meant for them. And that's just reality, and we just get used to it. There's no such thing as actual communicating across that that gap. Um, and in this view, the intent of the artist has very little relevance. Uh, even the questions, "What does this mean?" or "What is the artist trying to convey?" they're sort of naive questions. And so, this view, I would say. It can lead to some really sloppy art in which the artist doesn't need to have anything to say, actually. Um, obscurity is assumed to be a sign of sophistication. Uh, and confusion is not treated as, as a potential problem. So um, I don't blame people for, for being suspicious of this aspect of postmodernism. I, I am. 
but the kind of ambiguity that I'm, that I'm talking about is really referring to um, it's, a, it's, it's an ambiguity in which meaning actually really still matters rather than saying the world is meaningless, art should just be obscure and it doesn't matter, there's no communication possible, I want to say the world is complex so some art should be ambiguous in the way it communicates so that's all I want to say about those um, this lecture is really an attempt to ease some of those suspicions <laughs> uh, maybe not the last one so much but the other ones um, and talk about the legitimate place for ambiguity in art so <clears throat> what do art and ambiguity have to do with each other so when I say a, a, um, a work of art is hospitable to us when it is ambiguous I'm speaking metaphorically uh, and the metaphor is like this I'll try, to, I'll try to take some time to paint a picture for you here um, when someone offers you hospitality under normal circumstances they open a literal door and welcome you into a space where you to some degree are expected to receive things but also to engage with your host it's not good hospitality to tell a guest what they are expected to say and think uh, to hand them a script for the evening's conversation Unless, uh, which is something we do here sometimes, unless the dinner theater is actually part of the agreement, agreed, <laughs> and then it's totally, totally legitimate thing to do. Like, generally speaking, you don't hand someone a script, you know, for how the evening has to go. Um, it's not being a good guest if we just sit around staring at a wall, totally disengaged, either. Or if we only say what we think our host wants us to say, uh, this makes for a really boring evening uh, in which no one actually gets to know each other. Ideally, hospitality involves creating a space where a guest is able to bring something authentic of themselves and be themselves. Uh, and for this reason, where there's real hospitality, an evening's conversation will often be unpredictable, right? It could go anywhere. And it should. It should be unpredictable. <clears throat> also, something might even be expected of you as the guest. When does someone's home really start to feel like a home to you? For me, it's usually when they let me help with something. <laughs> they let me do something. Uh, set the table, peel the carrots, fill the water glasses, whatever. Uh, this work is not a failure of good hosting. It's actually a way of making someone feel like they're a part of what's happening here. Uh, like they actually belong in your home. You're entrusted with something, and that's, and that's important. So the guest is participating in the production of something, not just in the consumption of something. Um, so what does this have to do with art? That's, that's the sort of picture of hospitality I'm drawing here. Um, well, I, a work of art that resists telling you exactly what it means and what to think, a work of art that is actually comfortable with a degree of ambiguity is like a house with the door cracked open. If you have the motivation and the desire, you can push the door open and you can walk inside and look around. So when an artist is ambiguous in their art, they are welcoming you in to the creative space that they inhabit, I think, and inviting you to form some of your own impressions. So they're expecting something of you, and just like a good host, this has a dignifying effect on the guest. We're being respected and treated as a thinking being, as someone with a perspective. So just like a good host who resists handing you a script when you walk in the door, I think the best artists often resist displaying long-winded, explanatory 
plaques under each work telling you exactly what the acceptable parameters of thought are uh, regarding their piece, right? Even artists that do include some sort of explanatory paragraph uh, are often just helping you to begin to engage with their work. They're not telling you what everything means. So the best art, in a sense, I think, puts your imagination to work, which nearly always stimulates thoughts and insights. When you have to peel the carrots, you wind up with carrots in the salad, which is great. You know, you wind up with something. When you have to engage thoughtfully with a, with a work of art, you get fresh insights. And if you're someone who is an artist as well, uh, yourself, you might get fresh inspiration. And a lot of people have pointed this out. When you engage imaginatively with, with someone else's work, um, uh, it can beget more creativity in your own mind and in your own work. So no analogy is perfect. So to compare ambiguity in art to good hospitality does break down in places. That's not a perfect, not a perfect metaphor. For example, it's not the purpose of art to always make you feel comfortable. Whereas a good host wants their guests to feel comfortable. <laughs> right? Um, as we look at a painting or read a poem, we might actually be in need of some disturbing. And this is part of the prophetic role that artists can play and are supposed to play to disturb the audience to some degree. But my point is not that art should always put us at ease, but rather ambiguity in art leaves room for the audience to enter a space and give the imagination something to do. Um, it's like hospitality in that way. So, if you've ever been to a zoo and you've seen a lion, or recently, a couple years ago we were at a zoo, there was a couple of jaguars that were walking around. It's beautiful to behold, um, but also a little depressing because um, you see that the wild animal is clearly meant to move in a much larger space. You know, it's meant to have an enormous habitat. You know, It's made to actually do things, not just be looked at. And uh, if a space is really restricted, a large animal like that does not thrive. And I think sometimes watching the animal pace around in a small cage just reminds me of sort of what we what we do to our imaginations sometimes. Like our imaginations are very, very constricted and aren't allowed uh, free room to move very often. Um, if it's not given room to move, if it's not stimulated in any way, it will atrophy and, and fail to thrive. So, <clears throat> um, we've all probably seen art that expects not very much of us and maybe invites not very much from us either. Uh, the sort of art uh, that you, the audience member, uh, it doesn't really matter what you bring to the table. It doesn't really matter what your perspective is because it tells you exactly what to think, right? Um, doesn't You're not really supposed to have a perspective. <laughs> and with art like this, there's really only one kind of engagement available, and that is to approve or reject it. Do I, do I agree? Do I disagree? Do I yes or no? And that's, it doesn't get much more nuanced than that. And... In an extreme form, this lack of ambiguity is basically propaganda. It's what we call propaganda. <laughs> um, propaganda posters. Here's a couple of just examples. Um, you know, maybe sort of interesting images. You know, um, clearly someone knew about graphic, graphic design who, who designed these. Uh, but no one walks away from a propaganda poster wondering what it was trying to communicate. Uh, what are they getting at here? Um, the images and the words make that ab abundantly clear what you're supposed to get out of this. 
you may disagree with the message. You may think that it's perpetuating lies, whatever, you know, we, um, but there's not really a discussion about what it means, which means that there's no imaginative process going on in engaging with the art. Uh, to extend the hospitality metaphor a little further, this is like the, the host with the script at the door, you know, making it painfully clear what kind of things are okay to say and what kind of things are okay or what kind of things are not okay to say. Um, the kind of host that makes you feel like you'd better present a fake version of yourself just to make it through the evening. <laughs> you can agree with the propaganda, you can play along with it, not really agreeing, or you could walk away. But those are the, really the, the options. Uh, another analogy. <clears throat> what happens uh, when a group of people laugh at a very well-told joke? If you have someone who's funny and really good at jokes in the crowded room and they say something really funny, everybody bursts into laughter all at once. Uh, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon, actually. Animals don't do this. This is amazing human phenomenon um, large part of what makes a joke enjoyable is that we the listeners are allowed to make a connection the twist or the punchline or whatever it is is something we arrive at by ourselves Ideal, each of us by ourselves but ideally all at once with the group right? we all laugh at once sometimes we fail to make the connection quickly enough and we say I don't get it Like I don't, I don't what? why is that funny? And then if we have someone, if there's someone nice in the room, they may pull us aside and explain the joke to us. Um, we could all agree that no matter how funny the joke was, the explanation is never as funny. The explanation isn't funny. The explanation isn't a joke. Uh, it might be helpful, uh, but it can never, ever take the place of the joke for humor, right? <clears throat> what the explanation has in clarity, it lacks in power. And we'll talk about that distinction a little later. When we get a joke, we've made a connection ourselves. We've participated in the twist ourselves, which people talk about humor as being perceiving incongruity. Suddenly there's something incongruous and we see it in a new way and ha 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 ha, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty deep mystery actually, but, but um, anyway, but we've been allowed to make, make that connection ourselves. And, and I think there's something analogous here with art, art that does not allow the imagination of the audience to make connections. It may be precise, but it will not be powerful as art. Okay, does this make sense so far, sort of what I'm, what I'm getting at? Okay. Let's look at some examples of, of what I mean here. Um, so this is, a, this is a Chicago artist named Tim Lowley. This is a painting from 2002, um, and it's called Carry Me. And it's actually a portrait of the artist's daughter, Tema, who is severely disabled. Um, and this is when she was young. She's much older now, I think. Um, but she's being held by six women. And we'll look at this in different, in different angles in a minute. But I wish I could make the, the image a little bigger. But what do we, what do we make of this image? Um, to me, it's just, you know, the, the, the first thing that happens is just a bunch of questions come to mind. And I think it's a, it's a type of piece that invites those questions, and that's maybe the, the place to start, is to allow yourself to ask a lot of questions about what the artist is doing here. Um, 
what are these six women doing with this girl? <laughs> the obvious question. Um, who are they looking at? You? Are they looking at you, the viewer? They're looking up. Are they looking at God? Do their expressions betray anything? What is their attitude towards whoever they're looking at? What do what do you feel under their gaze? I'll just you can you can see when you look at different angles, you see different people's faces and their expressions. This is the entire painting flipped over. What's the significance that they're all women holding her? Uh, the picture for me calls to mind some various things, sort of by way of association. It reminds me of the, uh, the trust game, you know, where you fall backward and people catch you. you know? uh, but if that's what comes to mind, then we have to question that a little bit and be like, well, <laughs> this, this is a person who cannot stand on her own in the first place. Um, how much more trust she must need, and yet there's there's no choice here for her. She's no choice but to trust, um, and it's not a game. <laughs> also, it makes me think of the the um, the paralytic whose friends carry him to Jesus. And is this what the title "Carry Me" is hinting at? Maybe uh, is there faith in the expressions of these women? <clears throat> They seem to be offering Tema up, right? Offering her up in some way. But there's a note of challenge in each of their expressions. It's like they're asking, what what do you make of this person? What do you make of a world in which someone can be this physically broken? Uh, Is there an aspect of lament in it? Maybe. Um, Or is it an image of the sort of dependence that we should all admit we have on God? (laughs) All the time. So, is there one absolutely clear message that the artist is conveying to us? Obviously not. Right? Uh, Just ask about 15 questions, you know, none of which are easy to answer. Should it be more clear? Uh, Is total clarity what is called for? For example, would the piece be served by a substantial paragraph underneath telling you exactly what the artist was trying to accomplish? Uh, I don't think so at all. I don't think so. Uh, why? Uh, well, is our response to seeing a severely disabled person ever simple and clear? Uh, if you yourself have struggled with disabilities in one way or another, is that ever simple and clear? No. Uh, there's a way in which the ambiguity of the image is appropriate and, and truthful to reality. We may not know exactly what the piece means, but we it's pretty likely that you're going to keep thinking about it <laughs> in a way that a much clearer piece would you'd forget about, you know. Um, it's maybe intrigued you, it's maybe, it's maybe disturbed you, whatever. Um, but it demands a deep and, and not a superficial engagement. So I hope you can see that this piece, it's not that this piece is incomplete, it's not that the artist is hiding the truth and being deceptive, uh, neither is the artist unconcerned with meaning in art. Mm-hmm. It's not just being obscure, uh, but it's complex. It's not smooth, it's thorny. It's a thorny thing that, that the artist is doing. Uh, the meaning or meanings that are there have to be arrived at by the viewer, and they have to be worked for. 
And it's a kind of meaning, I think, unique to the medium. It's, it's communicating something that cannot be summarized in a few sentences. It's a visual image. It's, it's a painting. It communicates differently and does more to us than even a, even a really articulate essay on disabilities could communicate. Communicate something in a very different, a different way. So for all these reasons, I would say this piece is, is productively ambiguous. <laughs> it doesn't, we come away not knowing exactly what it's saying, but it actually is, it is, it's stimulated something in us. And it's encouraged us to engage, uh, more deeply, maybe more in a, in a more nuanced way. Um, but I want to look at a couple of other ways in which art can be ambiguous. Now, for any of you who are artists, this may be so obvious to you that it's boring. Um, and thankfully, I think that there's, in the last number of years, like Christians who are interested in the arts, or the church in general has has developed a lot more nuance and openness to art and the presence of artists and the work of artists. So that's a huge thing to be thankful for. Um, you know, these things might not have been as obvious 20 years ago. Um, but I'm just going to talk about a couple things that occurred to me, ways in which ambiguity can function really powerfully in art. Um, the compression of language. Now, this is something. This is obviously something that is, has more to do with with written um, written words, um, whether songwriting or poetry or, or fiction. Uh, more more poetry and songwriting, actually. Um, Daniel Levitin, who is a guy, he's actually a, a music producer that, at some point or other, became a neuroscientist. I don't know how that's done, but <laughs> probably went to school or something. Um, and he says this. This isn't a book that he wrote about the uh, called "The World in Six Songs." It's not it's not not the greatest book, but he says some interesting things in it. And he wrote a, a much better book called um, "This Is Your Brain on Music." So he's talking about all the what's happening in your brain when you perceive music. Anyway, um, but he says this: one characteristic of poetry and lyrics and songs compared to ordinary speech or writing is compression of meaning. Meaning tends to be densely packed, conveyed in fewer words than we would use in conversation or prose. The compression of meaning invites us to interpret, to be participants in the unfolding of the story. The best poetry, the best art in any medium is ambiguous. Ambiguity begets participation. And he he says something much more general at the end of that paragraph, but but he starts by talking about the compression of language, meaning... Um, very few words that carry a lot of weight. Think of how how uh, concise a poem is, given what a poem can communicate. Uh, and I think he's really right about this. Um, an- another similar way to say this is um, um, some language relies more on on power and than precision, and other language relies more on precision than than power. And the two can sometimes be um, inversely proportional. So, <laughs> so think of the difference between a legal document. I don't know if has anyone had to read a legal document recently. You don't have to say why. <laughs> but uh, the difference between a legal document and a poem. So a legal document has to be precise. Uh, it uses lots and lots and lots of words to achieve as much clarity as possible or to anticipate every possible misunderstanding or loophole or all the ways in which a lawyer could twist it to mean something else, right? So, so a, a legal document has to be very precise by being very wordy and using very precise language. Um, 
there should be as little interpretive wiggle room as possible um, in certain legal documents. But while while the while legal language is very precise, it it lacks power. <laughs> the, my heart has never been moved after reading an affidavit or whatever uh, a motion to dismiss or whatever. <laughs> um, my imagination has never been captured and drawn in and created pictures, you know, as a result. Um, but what about a poem? Uh, a good poem, it it needs to have precise imagery. There's an aspect of precision in poetry, absolutely. But it's never precise in the same way as a legal document, which has to just pile words upon words upon words to, to iron out every possible misunderstanding uh, and go for complete clarity. Um, in a poem, tremendous weight is resting on very, very few words, like Daniel Levitin is saying here. And that gives the few words immense power. And the poet relies on the, the imagery, what the imagery does in the minds of the reader. So, so the imagination of the reader has to pick up the language and pick up the images and do something with them. And yes, a poem can be read in different ways. Different people can pick up on different aspects of a poem. Uh, different people can be moved differently by the same imagery. And yes, this does mean that there is more room for misunderstanding, quote-unquote. Uh, but it's the same room which gives the poem the only power that it, that it has, right? It's the room that the, po- that the poem allows you as the reader to, to enter into. So anyone who loves poetry is glad that it communicates with few words but with powerful metaphors. That's why people love poetry. Um, we're glad that they don't communicate in the same way that a legal document communicates. And it's through the compression of language that a poem speaks in a way that only a poem can speak. Um, this, this, this issue of, of uh, power of language versus precision is, is an interesting one, and you can, you can find all kinds of different ways of approaching it, but um, someone has pointed out uh, that actually G- Jesus oftentimes errs on the side of power over precision in his language, in his way of speaking. Um, the Pharisees were more the legal precision type guys, right? They were the, they were the teachers of the law. They were the guys that had um, the scribes and the Pharisees writing down every detail of the law. Jesus tends not to just quote, quote the law at great length. He tends to say fairly short, pithy, provocative things and tells equally provocative stories. They're powerful, but also open to being misunderstood or simply dismissed as too hard. Think of some of Jesus' parables that people today, 2,000 years later, are still kind of like mulling over. What is he getting at? You know, like you can be sure that many people who heard his parables were like, what? Uh, whatever. The, the what, whatever response, right? And walked away. And that's actually part of the, sadly, that's part of the, way in which the parables are a judgment on, on people. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk more about Jesus' parables in a, in a little bit. What are some other ways in which art can be <clears throat> ambiguous? I, I think uh, understatements, good old-fashioned understatement. <laughs> don't say everything you mean. Just don't say... <laughs> uh, what's left unsaid often speaks the loudest. So the power of suggestion is a wonderful way to welcome people into a story or a song or a, or a, a film. Uh, and of course, there's many, many ways to do this. I think so, some of my favorite songs 
uh, in very, very few words, the songwriter suggests an entire backstory. They may be telling a story, but 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 uh, without saying very much of anything, you suddenly get this impression that there's a whole narrative behind the narrative that is informing it. Um, and it's, it's not completely precise. They don't. Nobody tells you exactly what the backstory is, but you sense that it's there, right? And that actually that actually grounds the the lyric in a really powerful way. The, the, you know, you as an audience member are invited to form a story behind the one that's being told. And um, I've never uh, a lot. I just have to thank Sarah Chestnut, my colleague, for a lot of a lot of the. Um, uh, we've been talking about this topic over the over a couple months now, um, and she's given me some helpful insights about this. But Sarah, the other day, Sarah <laughs> mentioned the other day it was a couple. I don't even know when it was. It was a long time ago. Um, I haven't done any really much of any stage acting at all, but but uh, Sarah told me once that like a, a a good, very often good stage acting comes as a result of when the actor creates a backstory in their minds to support the action on the stage. You know, even if the playwright didn't write the backstory, you as the actor come up with a plausible um, foundational narrative from which you act, and it actually affects. It affects um, the performance a lot. Makes what you're doing plausible. Um, and that's just a fascinating idea to me. Um, so uh, we're going to listen to a Tom Waits song, and it's called "Soldiers' Things." And I'm not going to say a whole lot. I'll just listen to it. Um, hopefully, the technical things will work for me. Next. 
song, right? <laughs> Any? <laughs> what do you all make? Does anybody make anything of this song? No pressure. I'm glad this is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Linda. Yeah. 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 To me, it sounds like a garage sale, like a like a yard. Uh, and yeah, getting having having to get rid of a bunch of stuff that this old this man owned, whoever whoever this guy was, and you're not you're not told who the soldier was. You're not even told who the narrator is. What what's the voice in the song? You don't really know. Um. But I think there's a, there's a vague impression that it's a family member, it's a, it's a, a child, or maybe a spouse, maybe the wife of this soldier, who's obviously gone, and it's just getting rid of a lifetime worth of things, right? So, the, so you think think of what's implied and not stated about a backstory, and and it's literally the song is literally just a list of objects, pretty much. With a couple of, I mean, the the uh, the chorus or the the whatever the refrain that's repeated twice. The soldier thinks his rifle's boots full of rocks. This one's for bravery. It's a, it's like a little box of of medals, right? This one's for bravery. This and then the person, whoever they are, sees something that they want to keep, right? Oh, this one's for me, actually. You know, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this one, right? Um, and then everything's a dollar in the box. Right, it's just—it's really, it's quite sad. Um, but it, it think of think of how compressed the language is, and think of how little is actually said about. He doesn't tell us to be sad at any point. He doesn't. Um, but you connect sort of emotionally with the story, even though you can't fill in all the blanks and you can't clarify exactly what everything means. But you're, um, I feel like I'm there. Walking along in someone's driveway at a table, looking at a bunch of junk, you know, like, huh, what's that, you know? Um, and yet, all that stuff means something. It's all that stuff is part of a story that the narrator knows, even knows the person. And 
Yeah. A line that jumped out at me that um, almost seems sort of out of place because he's listing these things. Yeah. And then he says, trophies and paperbacks. And then he makes a comment that seems kind of irrelevant. It's good transportation, but the brakes aren't so hot. Yeah. But I was thinking, I mean, it's almost like your thesis, you're referring to the paperbacks. The paperbacks are good transportation for your brain. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but the brakes aren't so hot. <laughs> take you places maybe you don't want yeah. to <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't thought of that as corresponding to the paper. I think they're literally trying to sell the car, too. Yeah. The car is junk. There's a junk. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. Game, like you're saying, it's sort yeah. of like the heart of your thesis, the ambiguity. You could take it in different in different ways, yeah. Exactly. So it's ambiguous. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the whole point of me playing the song for you this evening, yes. It's but it could transport you somewhere. Right. It's not. It's not obscure in the sense that there's no meaning, and that it's and it's not. Um, it's not as if Tom Waits is just trying to be confusing for us. He's, he's, he's telling us coherence. And I think because it's ambiguous and he's not saying, there was an old woman whose, whose husband died in war and selling all this stuff in the driveway and it's sad. You know, like, no, he's, he's, he's very particular. Like every line is a particular object you can pick up and hold, you know, and he's, but he's telling a story through it somehow and he's doing it really masterfully. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. Because some things are obviously um, reminiscent of war. The song. The song is soldiers' things, and he obviously fought in the war or some war, and he's got things that like medals for bravery and a rifle and boots, and then there's other stuff which is just like his civilian life after coming back. Like, oh, maybe he was part of a boxing club, or maybe he had a necktie for when he went out, to, you know, whatever. It was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, Gillian Welch is another uh, singer that I think is just really a genius at like saying a lot while saying very very little. Um, I'm not, not going to listen to the song right now just for the sake of time, but there's this wonderful song, just one example of many for her. Um, the song is called "No One Knows My Name," and it, it's, it's sort of somewhat autobiographical. She was adopted as a, as an infant, and so never knew her biological mother or father. Um, and she was happily adopted. It was, grew up in a, a good home. Um, but she talks about this experience of not knowing your name, in a sense, because you're not you don't really know where you came from. You don't know what your original mother would have called you. You don't know any of these things. Um, and how, in the last verse, she says that. It, but actually, it's an interesting song because she talks about. But I have a name written in the sky. There's this there's this sort of idea that even if I'm you know, this orphan that nobody knows. Um, I, I've, as a human being, I still have significance that, that's somehow written in the sky. She doesn't talk about God directly, but it is, it's, it's quite, um, 
suggestive of that. And then the last verse, she says this, Now and then there's a lonesome feeling on my mind. On a crowded street I see a stranger's face that looks like me. Now and then there's a lonesome feeling on my mind. And then, then that just moves on. And it's like, it's one of those interesting moments where you're like, wow, that is, that is a lot in that line. If you think about what, a, you know, someone who's adopted, who never knew any blood relative at all, mother, father, siblings, cousins, nothing. Um, it had never occurred to me before hearing that line that like seeing someone that looks like you would be a really weird experience and a strange experience and a lonesome experience. Um, anyway, um, she could have taken many, many more words to say that, and it wouldn't have been as good. I'm going to play another song. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about about juxtapositions that can be jarring. And I'm, I'm thinking mostly as a musician here. Um, and I usually don't like to give uh, <laughs> trigger warnings <laughs> before I do. You know, there's a lot of trigger warnings in the world, and and uh, this song is a little rough, and, uh, and I'll explain ahead of time just a little bit about what it is, so that it doesn't take you take you um, off guard. But uh, the voice. This is a Randy Newman song. It's called "Sail Away." Um, it's one of the you know Randy Newman is known for his Pixar movies music, um, and then he has this sort of darker side, <laughs> which is his solo album career. Um, Going back to you know like short people got no reason to live like way back in the day and then a lot a lot of other songs that have been uh, misinterpreted <laughs> over the years. Anyway, the voice this is "Sail Away." The the voice in this song is um, that of a slave trader who's trying to convince an African person to climb on board the ship and come to America. Come to America. It's gonna be great. Um, Randy Newman is not suggesting in any way that this is how Africans came to colonial America. He knows that. Uh, he knows there's no no persuasion involved. Um, but there's this horrifying kind of ironic twist in the song. The narrator is trying to sell America to a person who will be for sale in America when they arrive. And that's kind of this like jarring thing that he's doing in the song. Um, that's my warning, and we'll listen to it now, and then we can talk about it afterwards. Sail away, 
I'm not going to argue that every song needs to do what Randy Newman is doing in this song. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I'll just share a couple of thoughts on it. Um, so the song is, is full of lies, right? <laughs> These are lies. We know they're lies. Uh, to me, the the most horrible lie is that um, every man is free to take care of his home and his family. It's kind of like this, um, precisely what it was was not um, what Africans brought to this country were not able to do. Um, the slave trader tempts this person with the very stereotypes that await them in the new world. That's something that Randy Newman has talked about. He said he said this in an interview. It's about a recruiter out there in the jungle recruiting for the slave trade with basketballs and watermelons and all kinds of offensive things. Um, But the song sets that brutal, disturbing, lyrical content to this big, beautiful, harmonious, orchestral kind of cinematic thing. The big strings coming in... um, and this is the kind of jarring, this is the kind of juxtaposition I'm talking about. The Randy Newman is really, really good at this kind of thing. Uh, the music is sweet and consonant. There's not a lot of tension musically going on at all. Big, pretty chords. Uh, while his lyrics are just brutal and, and thorny and painful to listen to. Uh, and then meanwhile, his vocal performance displays almost zero emotion at all. He's just talking. Basically, it's what Randy Newman usually does. is just kind of like, blah, 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 blah. He just kind of mumbles through the song. And this is a lot of incongruity. If you think about what's going on in the song, if you actually, if you didn't listen to the words at all, you'd just be like, yeah, pretty song, you know. But if you actually like, sort of try to get at what's going on, there's a lot of incongruous things happening at once. Shouldn't there be more horribly dissonant music to match the horribly dissonant words? Maybe. <laughs> uh... But the dissonance that Randy Newman chooses is between the music and the words. So rather than having the music be as, as, as sort of harsh and nasty as the words, he sets up this, this really, uh, I think, dramatic tension between the words and the music. So Bob Edwards, the NPR personality, was interviewing Randy Newman a number of years ago, and uh, he asked him this question, like, why... Did you write such a beautiful song about such a horrible subject? And Randy Newman said, what am I supposed to say? Slavery is bad? It's like falling out of an airplane and hitting the ground. It's too easy, and it has no effect. So <laughs> he, says, um, he says this also, I wrote Sail Away because the slave trade is our main imperialist crime, our insoluble problem. And he doesn't offer any nice resolution. He doesn't tell us exactly what to think. He doesn't give us a clear moral. We feel a little bad for having listened to the song. I feel a little bad for finding it pretty, even. Um, has he made us uncomfortable for being comfortable? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but he knows. I think this, this is just my sort of conjecture here. I think Randy Newman knows that most white people are very used to experiencing moral indignation about slavery. Yes, it's bad. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, but it is an indignation that has, has very little skin in the game. 
Our indignation is ironically a comfortable habit. Uh, many Americans can't afford to, to, to have that comfortable habit, but, but as sort of white, middle-upper-class middle, middle upper class Americans, uh, being indignant about the injustice of slavery is sort of a comfortable habit. It can be. Um, yeah, something we, we may voice once or twice at a party to just make sure everyone knows that we're woke enough to be taken seriously. Um, how do you disturb people like that? How do you disturb people like me that are used to being indignant? <laughs> uh, one way is to give us a completely absurdly disturbing fictional scenario like this to just shock us back into something like an appropriate hatred of slavery. Um, just the, 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 the slavery was just horrific nonsense and this, this makes it look like horrific nonsense for the you know, for the first time in a while. For me, you're like, oh yeah, it's really, really uh, um, horrific. So, um, as Christians, I think we should want to experience whatever glimpse we can get of God's righteous anger. Um, God's anger at injustice should be our anger at injustice, too. Um, and so, that's that's, I think that's an aspect of what Randy Dim is trying to do here, but is it absolutely? He, he doesn't. He doesn't attempt to explain it. There's no final chorus where he says, "And this is what I meant. Uh, this is why I. This is why I chose to write the song the way I did." Um, he's just trying to get people's attention with something that we're sort of used to feeling bad about, but not talking, but not actually reflecting on very deeply. Okay, um, another aspect of amb- another way in which in, uh, work can be ambiguous is just through layers of meaning. Very often, a work can mean many, many things all at once, and this is not foreign to scripture at all. I'm going to actually we're going to talk about one of Jesus' parables here because Jesus is a master at telling a story that has multiple layers and multiple meanings functioning all at once. Um, and that actually requires quite a lot of engagement to get to, to, to actually come to grips with what he's saying. Um, Jesus' parables, I think, welcome people in by demanding that they that they actually engage. Um, when Jesus says, uh, "Those who have ears, let them hear," he's challenging people, I think, to go home and stew on his parables. <laughs> go home and and uh, go home and try to have ears to hear about what I was saying. So ironically, I think some of Jesus' most powerful parables are, are most hospitable to people after Jesus sends them away because they're, they're stories that stick in your head and you keep on reflecting on them and thinking about them. Uh, but you only get something out of them if you engage them pretty seriously. So uh, this is the, the Good Samaritan parable. I'm actually, this is maybe a silly thing to do, but I'm actually... Not going to read the whole thing right now. I am going to leave it on the screen though. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to talk about it, assuming that maybe it's familiar to most of you. Maybe not, sorry. Um, this is not an easy story to consume and, and move along. Um, I think it's one of those stories that you take home and it keeps poking you with a stick. <laughs> um, and it all begins when a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks, uh, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. 
And when the man says, yes, uh, you know, love the Lord your God um, and your neighbor as yourself, Jesus surprisingly says, yep, that's it. You got it. Um, We don't often expect that kind of answer from Jesus. But the lawyer is still uneasy, and the text says he's uneasy because he desires to justify himself. And so he says, who is my neighbor? (laughs) In other words, uh, the impression we get, I think, is that the man knows he cannot possibly love everyone. What an unreasonable request that would be. There must be some parameters to this command to love, to make it more manageable, to make it easier to, to quantify his own righteousness. Remember, he's trying to justify himself. And uh, I need, some, I need some, some really nice, measurable, quantifiable metrics here. So who's my neighbor? <laughs> um, who qualifies? Who can I exclude? Who doesn't qualify as my neighbor? Who do I not have to call my neighbor? I think that's the implied, <laughs> the implied question here, and Jesus' answer is the story of the Good Samaritan. That's how that's how the that's how the the, uh, the parable comes about in the story. And notice what Jesus does not say in the story. He does not tell a story about an exemplary Jew who is such a loving neighbor that he goes out of his way to help a Samaritan, someone the Jews normally hate. Uh, This way of telling the story would have made, in some ways, more sense. Uh, The lawyer was a Jew and would have expected a Jew to be commended in the story. You know, surely the Jewish character is the one to emulate in this this narrative. Uh, But no, Jesus flips the story on its head and lifts up a Samaritan as someone whose conduct should be imitated. In other words, the Samaritan is a better Jew than all the Jewish people in the story. He demonstrates what it means to be a neighbor in God's eyes. And the lawyer is sort of forced to admit when Jesus asks him that the Samaritan and not all the religious Jews were the real neighbor. He's like, mm, he doesn't say this, but you get a sense that he's like, eh, the Samaritan. <laughs> Maybe that's me projecting, but um, Jesus doesn't leave him any way out of that. Who's the, who's the neighbor? <laughs> and... Uh, but what does he walk away with? What, you know, what does, what does this man walk away with thinking about? We can, we can imagine quite a lot. Um, he's walking away with an awareness that righteousness can be found in people he most despises. That was a hard lesson. Uh, we're invited to fill in the blank for ourselves, or, you know, the people that we have the hardest time relating to or loving. Maybe righteousness can be found in those people that we're unaware of. Uh, secondly, uh, he walks away with some level of awareness that he might have something to learn from people who he thinks can offer him nothing. It was the Jewish man in the story who was injured and, and in desperate need of help, not the Samaritan. And so if there's any trace of sort of superiority in this lawyer, Jesus has really challenged it. Um, the Jewish character in the story was the one in need. Also, the Jewish man would have been made ritually unclean as the Samaritan touched him. But could he really say, don't touch me, get away from me? He was in no position to do that. He, he needed to be touched. He needed to be helped. And so there's another whole layer in this, a subversive little dig at, the, at, at these very rigid purity laws that I think were the source of, of uh, false righteousness, self-righteousness. 
Um, I think that this man would have come away with an awareness that it was really hard for him to acknowledge anything good about a Samaritan. His own hatred and prejudice were probably revealed to him a bit in this moment. Uh, We tend to only notice the grip that sin has on us when we try to resist it. When we try to shake free and we ask ourselves, why is it so hard? Like, Well, it's hard because you've never tried to resist it before. (laughs) And uh, I think this man saw that in himself. Um, he comes away, I think, with a conviction that to be a neighbor means to drop everything and abandon all your plans and try to meet the very costly needs of someone else, even if it's this person that you hate. And then lastly, the lawyer, I think, learned that if this is the standard for what God means by loving my neighbor, I cannot possibly justify myself before God. How can I justify myself before God if this is what God expects this is what loving neighbor means. It's like, I fall short of this every moment of every day. So I think this is really the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Um, he's taught him about his inability to earn God's favor, his desperate need for mercy, forgiveness, which means reevaluating the typical ways in which he would have measured his own righteousness. And then Jesus confronts him with his own prejudice regarding Samaritans all in the space of a few verses. You see how there's just there's many, many layers going on here. It would have been a much simpler story to say, a Samaritan fell on the, on the roadside, got assaulted, was hurt, and a, and, a, and a righteous Jewish person took care of them, and that's how a righteous Jew is supposed to behave. But he, he flips the whole thing, and, and by doing that, makes it much more complicated. <laughs> and uh, probably something that, that uh, the people who listened would have gone home and mulled over. So, um, there's an aspect of ambiguity in this. There's an aspect because the story is not immediately explicable right away. It takes an engagement over time. Okay, so I want to I want to end uh, with just some what I hope will be some encouraging thoughts. Um, if you are if you're someone who appreciates music and poetry and and the visual arts. Um, does this mean that you need to reevaluate your standards of what makes art good? Does good art have to be opaque and incomprehensible? Is that what, is that what we're talking about? Um, if I look at a painting on the wall, I'm like, yeah, I think I pretty much get what's going on there. Does that mean that it's just like superficial and lame? Um, no, I mean, I, no, I sympathize with this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been to art galleries, you know, you know, contemporary art galleries where you, you come away just feeling like I've just. I wasn't supposed to understand anything in this room. This was the conversation between artists about the nature of art. And I was trying to eavesdrop on that conversation, and I can't do it. So, oh well. <laughs> and and uh, I felt that way at times. Um, I want to say, no, art is, art is still for people. <laughs> um, there's still important meaning to convey in art. Sometimes I think artists need to be reminded of this. Um, but as audience members, if you're if you're someone who's listening to music or going to the theater or or uh, going to museums, uh, let's be prepared to take more time reflecting on the art that's challenging. Uh, let's give good poems and paintings and stories the time they deserve. And in a way, this is this is a way of accepting the hospitality the artist is offering you. They want you to engage with with what they're making. Uh, accept that and, and enter in. Uh, this may mean resisting the temptation to have an immediate opinion. A lot of us love to have an opinion really fast. 
sometimes we feel as Christians we're supposed to have an opinion really fast. Because we need to have an opinion really fast, otherwise we don't know if we're allowed to enjoy it or not. And we don't want to enjoy it by accident, so we have to have, it, we have, to have a really firm understanding of it right away. Uh, um, yeah, so that, I, w- I would say um, we maybe need to practice being able to, to reflect and speak about art without using phrases like, I like or I don't like, at least not at first. I mean, we can have our views of things, but like, sometimes we need to engage without immediately evaluating uh, in order to understand. Because the, the quicker you evaluate a work of art, uh, very often that's the quicker you stop, you stop actually thinking about it. You can categorize it as something that's, oh, that's over there now. Um, but uh, engage, engage and, and hold off on the evaluation for a little while. Usually that's a productive way to approach something you don't fully understand. Not all art is heavily conceptual. A lot of the things I've said tonight, like how does that apply to a beautiful landscape painting? Well, it it doesn't as much, honestly. Um, uh, That's fair enough. Um, It's still okay to love a a painting because it's beautiful and it doesn't doesn't have some weird, dark, multi-layered, incomprehensible aspect to it. That's just fine. Um, there's different kinds of art and there's different expectations that we have of different kinds of art depending on the purpose and the, the context uh, if you're an artist uh, and you feel you have something to communicate through your art uh, does this mean that your job is to sort of add ambiguity like the last uh, ingredient in a recipe uh, nope that's, uh, that's not what we're talking about it's not something you you overlay on top of something that's basically clear to you, and you're just going to try to sort of arbitrarily make whatever you know, sprinkle the ambiguity on top. Um, really, this kind of it kind of assumes that um, that all artists have an absolutely clear message in their mind about what their art is doing, uh, and then they go about intentionally obscuring it to make it sort of more. Uh, edgy or challenging, and this is really—I think this is kind of a false image of the, of the work of the artist, at least for, for most artists. Often, making art as a way of exploring ideas uh, through the process of engaging with the medium, whether it's the the, the paint or the words, the chords, the melodies. Um, artists do not start with a blueprint of meaning and then simply build it and execute it. You, very often, it's. Uh, meaning that emerges from working with the medium. You, you know, uh, form emerges from pushing and pulling at the clay. <laughs> and, uh, and this is a good thing. This is part of the exploration that art making is. And it doesn't, Genesis doesn't say this, but you, you wonder whether God played with the dirt for a while before he made a person. You know, it doesn't say. Maybe, how does that, what is this stuff like? What is, you know, <laughs> um, I've certainly found this to be the case in songwriting. You just kind of like, you get into a process of working with chords and melodies and everything, and, and it's not as if it's not as if I'm just executing a plan that I already had in my head. Um, I'm discovering what it is, what needs to be said, right? And so, within that model of art making, you know, ambiguity sprinkled on top doesn't make any sense. You know, you're actually um, the, the whole the whole process of what is one of exploring and trying to find find the meaning. Um, again, another the conversation that Sarah and I had after this conference. We went to a conference in Vermont earlier this fall, and 
had a long drive on the way home, and so we were talking about ambiguity. It's a great car conversation, ambiguity. Um, uh, but basically, just I mean, maybe especially for Christians, the, the goal isn't ambiguity. The goal is truthfulness and honesty. Uh, on, truthfulness about the world as it is, which is ambiguous sometimes. Uh, truthfulness... Is our work true to life? Does it ring true? Does it come from the same world that everyone else is actually living in? Is it emotionally honest? Um, if, we, if we aim for that sort of truthfulness, uh, our, our work will be as ambiguous as it needs to be. Um, there's no way around the fact that when we strive for this kind of truthfulness in art making, that, that reflects the complexities of life, that reflects the you know the fallenness of the world, you know, uh, it will call us to take risks. And whenever the people of God are called to take risks, they're called to trust God. So this is a, this is an aspect of of what uh, I think it's really important in art making. Trusting God is really actually just foundational way we're supposed to relate to God in every aspect of life, all the time, no matter what. Um, but uh, when we engage with art, whether we're an artist or, or someone that's viewing art, um, it's an opportunity, like any other, to, to relinquish some of our control and to trust the Lord. Um, and I just want to end with a couple, of, with a series of questions for for your reflection. What would it mean like? What would it look like to to trust God um, in our art making in that way? Really, it's just questions, you know. I think first and foremost, do do we trust that God is the primary audience for all of life, including our art, and that it's really only his evaluation of us that ultimately carries weight? And if we belong to Christ, that evaluation is good. Um, can this, if we're really convicted of this, is this, if this is what we believe, can that help us to be less anxious about other people's evaluation of our art? Do we trust that to make good, challenging, and truthful art is actually just an act of obedience to God? And that he is pleased with that endeavor, even if our art is not well received by others? Can we trust God to use us even as we produce open-ended and ambiguous work, which is work that is at risk of being misunderstood? Do we do we trust God as we contemplate being misunderstood? You can learn a lot from Jesus himself in that. Trusting God when he knows he's being misunderstood in a way that we can hardly fathom, I think. But what do I mean by that? Do I believe that God's spirit really is at work in people such that I do not need to spell out exactly what every aspect of my song means? Uh do I trust God enough to allow other people to bring their own perceptions to my work? Can I be free from the need to control and curate everybody else's interpretations? Uh, this takes trust. This is, takes a lot of trust in God to put something out there. Um, can God actually turn what I consider room for misunderstanding into the room that is hospitable to, to other people? So can we trust him with our work as we release it to whatever public there is? Whoever, if anyone's paying attention to our work, that's great. But as we release it to them, um, 
you know, can we trust him that he'll do something, that it's significant, that it means something, even if people look at it and say, what, whatever. So these are all these are all ways in which I think we can trust God within this conversation, um, and that's where I'm going to end. Um, but there's obviously a lot more to say, and there's quite a few uh, rabbit trails in terms of discussion or clarification that I chose not to include in the lecture because it would have been way too long. But if in the discussion time, you, if there's anything y'all want to raise, what about this? You didn't mention this. Um, feel free. Um, at this point, anybody's welcome to leave who wants to leave. Please feel free to duck out, but you're welcome to also stay if you want to be part of the conversation. things, different ways of, of saying that are maybe clearer, but it's, it's not as if like clarity is a great enemy. It's more like right. being overly simplistic yeah. about reality mm-hmm. um, in a way that is not truthful. Yeah, <laughs> so like sometimes it's possible to be pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> and if that's if that's what we're supposed to do, we should be, you know, it's not as if like, always err on the side of being ambiguous. Um, 
Um, yeah, it's just. I mean, I guess my point is that there's just certain th- certain <clears throat> certain issues that our art should be engaging with that just aren't well served by very very simple explanations and statements and images and whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Kathy. Have you um, read any of the work of Flannery O'Connor? Yes. Yeah. I think she fits into this lecture pretty good in terms of her. Yeah. She takes what you were talking about, jar, a jarring. Yes. Um, yeah. And she, she, I think she, I'm thinking one of the interviews with her, somebody mm. said, well, why do you write these horrible, yeah. <laughs> you know, these horrible stories yeah. that make these really awful turns. And yeah. she, I think she said something along the lines of, well, people today don't take sin seriously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that you really have to shock people mm-hmm. into seeing it yeah. um, before, you know, to bring them to a place where they begin to think. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's, um, she may say that in various places, but there's one essay in um, the book Mystery and Manners where she talks about that particularly, you know, when someone's deaf, you have to speak loudly. Yeah. And she's, she's, She's a Roman Catholic yeah. writing, but in the you know American South, so not a lot of Catholics down there at the time. Right. She's she really felt the culture had just a lot had become desensitized to to evil. Does can't, calls good bad, bad good. <laughs> has no sense anymore, yeah. and so she's going out of her way to to portray these sort of shockingly grotesque kind of characters yeah. that. Um, now, in a way to kind of shock people into recognizing uh, evil as an ugly thing again, right? right. right. Um, have you read Revelation? Yes, yeah. That's her best yeah, yeah. short story. Yeah. I think it's one of her best. Yeah. Just I highly novel. recommend Flannery O'Connor's short stories. There's a copy of her complete short stories over there. Just um, Yeah, I have two of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bought one and then I forgot that I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have one to lend to a friend. Yeah, it's good. Right. <laughs> yeah, but she's written a lot of actually really helpful things on just on that very. Um, yeah, her, I mean, her stories all demand real engagement. For, you know, unless you're just kind of reading them really superficially, and you're like, oh, or uh, or just like, oh, there's absurdity, and they're oftentimes funny in a kind of a twisted way, and then you, you could engage with them on a superficial level there too. But but almost always she is. Setting up a very sort of dark, sad, and twisted kind of scenario in order to, in order to make a very, very brief and fleeting kind of glimmer of, of hope, which she calls grace, breaking like mystery, essentially, mm-hmm. that kind of like flashes into the story and me, and it's gone. And it's that sort of moment of insight that, that for her, it's, it's, it's kind of the reason why she sets up the stories the way that she does, I think. Um, that's yeah. that's interesting the way you yeah. put that. I, yeah. I like that. Yeah, that little flicker of yeah, little flicker of grace. Yeah, in the midst of. But it means a lot because of how because of the setting. Um, even just a little, even just a little glimmer is really powerful. Yeah. Thank Sarah. You. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think this is sort of a <clears throat> question about the creative process. Um, I guess I'm thinking of, I think some of the best uh, advice I've had in terms of 
uh, editing poems mm -hmm. and, and sort of asking the question of like, is this poem finished? Mm. Um, is is to ask, does it begin where it begins, and does it end where it ends? Mm -hmm. uh, because so often we have a lot of needless runway, <laughs> yeah. and we have a lot of uh, just over explaining yeah. at the end yeah. of a piece of work. And I, a big I mean, post loop. I, I, I know yeah. how that. I, I get how that works in, in word based yeah. Yeah, yeah. art, and um, I've gathered a little bit of maybe what that might be like for visual artists, mm. like having to step away from, come back, is this finished? Mm -hmm. Is there something more? You know, and, and like that, um, I'm just curious, maybe from your, your own experience or others in the room, like how, I, I, think, I think it is, it has a lot to do with being okay you. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Like to to be able to, um, yeah, just step away from something mm -hmm. and not sort of I don't know overwork the dough. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Like for for me, it's like say if I record something and like it's not like this is a, I'm on the world stage or anything, but like some people might listen to it and like okay. Um, I don't get to stand there next to them when they listen to it and be like, actually, so, so what I meant by this? And, uh, and uh, I thought, for a while I thought about this other line, but this is, you know, what with this? Because, no, you, you have to, like, <laughs> you have to just let it stand and, and on its own two feet, and, and if, if it stands on its own two feet. Um, and, uh, and that that's sort of an aspect of trust, but it's also yeah, it's, it's also like does it does it? Um, I'm someone that tends to overwrite and then have to rein it in and edit and edit and edit, you know, down to something that's just feasible. Um, but I think a lot of that is is like you said the the unnecessarily long runway and then a lot of explaining. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, it doesn't need that. No, because because essentially you're, you're leaving nothing for the the person to. To do, <laughs> there's there's less less engagement required. Whereas with the right imagery and the right silences, you could say everything that you need that needs to be said, and the person will be engaging with it because they're doing some of that work. Yeah. 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 Esther. Well, I was just going to say, I think uh, you know, to the point of trusting, mm -hmm. I think readers or listeners, good appreciators of art, like they love to be trusted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's a way yeah. that the maker honors yep. the one who is really engaging yeah. the work of art. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's dignifying, yeah. 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 Esther, do you have a Yeah, comment? I was just, I, I've just been thinking about, about the word ambiguity because it can tend to make you think they're like unclear mm -hmm. or um, I mean I think you you kind of made this set up this juxtaposition between power and precision mm -hmm. and like as a writer I'm actually always looking for precision mm -hmm. but not but but precision like precision of language economy of language yeah um, but that still that creates a room yeah like I'm, I'm, I like that yeah. image a lot because 
like you said, like a legal document has no, leaves no room for misunderstanding. Mm. It leaves no room at all. Mm -hmm. like it's not a room. It's not making a room. <laughs> um, it's a wall. <laughs> yeah, because it can't, it can't allow, allow for that. That's mm -hmm. that's one point. That's what lawyers are for is to find the cracks in the, in the wall. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like other words that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm having a bit of trouble with the word ambiguity. Mm -hmm. um, not with how you define it, but I think just, just to say that generally yeah. would be troubling. And I think going back to what, like connecting with what Sarah said, one of the things like in fiction, what you talk about is like, how much resolution mm -hmm. do you get to a story? Yeah. And talking about open-endedness. And yeah. so asking like, where does, is, does it end where it ends? Yeah. Um, or is there like an opening? Mm-hmm there. Um, I think that's, that's a helpful way for me to think mm -hmm. about it. Um, there was another piece, but I forgot what it was. Can I respond to one part of that? I, to I totally, um, I, I know what you mean by the, I, I, I didn't want to give this impression, but I also didn't know how, how best to articulate it, but just, it's not that a legal document is precise and a poem is imprecise. Right. It, there's a precision, there's a different kind of precision taking place. It's not the kind of precision that <coughs> writes 20 pages to make sure there's no possible misunderstanding. Right. That's one, that's one kind of precision, <laughs> you know, like, whereas the, the, the precision in a poem is a precision of imagery. It's, it's supposed to call your mind specific things, but, it, but, but as you engage with a metaphor in a poem, it gives you something to latch onto that end, that ends up opening up a, like a, a space, right, mm -hmm. in which you can, in which people can experience it differently, um, yeah. and that's that's not a lack of clarity. You know, the, the, the distinction isn't between uh, precision and and vagueness or something like that. I mean, that that would be a totally misunderstanding. What? Yeah, and that's why I think the hospitality metaphor is so helpful mm -hmm. because it is about making space. If you don't have any walls, then you don't have a space in which to be. Yeah. You're just kind of vaguely existing yeah. somewhere. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there also has to be space to just like build in. Right. I don't know what stuff full of pillows or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds kind of nice. But... No <laughs> Linda, do you have something? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I was thinking when you were speaking, um, and also I write too, and I'm a campus minister at my job who um, is a videographer, and we used to go back and forth. We used to always be like, I don't like Christian films, but they're so, like, God's not dead, so specific. It yeah. feeds you, like, the storyline and the problem. And, and we used to wrestle with that. Like, I like clarity mm. and, like, want to know. And then... So I kind of wonder, um, as my perception of salvation changed and I didn't feel like I was on Jesus' marketing team anymore, mm -hmm. like that I believe like the Holy Spirit can work through conversations with people and there could be some things left in imagination, I wonder if certain perceptions of, of salvation, um, Arminian versus Calvinistic, or would, would find this more palatable. Mm. Um, and, and like my curiosity would be like maybe some people Calvinistic leaning, we find you, you know something that's a little bit more like ambiguous, as opposed to somebody who's a Arminian who thinks it can be mm. like I don't know, like, mm. I'm not sure, and I don't want to make that judgment necessarily. Like mm. maybe there's another angle that I'm not seeing, but 
interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting. Any, any responses? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Anybody have any thoughts about that? In a sense, I mean, obviously we're speaking in generalizations, but there are some church traditions that have that are more comfortable with mystery than other church traditions, right? And um, but mystery can mean different things. I mean, like there, there's um, it, this is just sort of a tangent, but it, it's just sort of fascinating to me that the all of the early heresies in the church are basically a, a, a refusal to, to accept mystery. <laughs> you know, trying to simplify something that we're trying to trying to make something more rational that is that is intrinsically mysterious. Like the, Jesus is fully, fully God, fully a human being at the same time. This is real, you know, and this is something that the early Arian heresy just like refused to accept. <laughs> the like, reverse could be yeah. said about the church and their judgment of the heresies too, though. Mm-hmm. now, like, the heresies would fly, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, I mean, the church was that explicit about what they were saying about divinity and humanity. Mm-hmm. And there are all these little, little tangents on what each one was saying about his, his inner nature, mm-hmm. and yet... The church was so explicit about what they were saying that they didn't tolerate any ambiguity about, mm-hmm. you know, what, it, what, you know what I mean? There was, there, there I, was I'm a not sure. To, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's, I guess we'll get already particularly later that there's a lot of that there's some hair splitting, but but in in general, the earliest creeds basically are trying to say, no. You, they're, they're, they're very precise language. They're not, they're intentionally not ambiguous, but what they're trying to do is, pr- is be precise in order to protect a mystery. So that Jesus is fully God and fully human being. That means he is not a creation. He's of the same substance. There's all this language that sounds almost like a legal document, actually. But, 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 but what it's doing is trying to say, you can't, you can't make it easier to understand rationally by saying, yeah, he's not really God, he's just a person. Or you know, he's just God; he's not really a person. That that's that makes more sense rationally, but that's but that's not the truth. And so but the, the, the trouble is, the mystery is grounds for ambiguity. It could be said, you know. What do you mean by that? Well, the reason you're ambiguous about say uh, whatever is that it's mysterious. What you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, and who we have sense of that same nature, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. I need to think more about that, about the relationship between ambiguity and, and communi- communicating sort of mystery in the Christian faith, because there's some, the Bible talks about mystery in different ways. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes mystery is something that just hasn't been revealed yet, but it will one day be revealed. So that, that's, that's the way that Paul uses the word. Um, but then there's other things that I think are, it's not an imprecise or vague or ambiguous doctrine, but it is a but it is a belief that we should not expect to fully understand rationally. For instance, the, the Trinity or something like that, or or, or that or the two natures of Christ. Um, it's not vague and ambiguous. The belief is clear, but how it how that comes to be cannot be can't crack it with our minds, and that's that's what the mystery is. It says that it's like you, it is. The doctrine itself isn't, in a sense, confusing. A child can understand that Jesus is God and he's a person. 
but the most experienced theologian will never understand exactly how that happens, how that is. I mean, I think that, and that's the, that's where like mystery is, it's a distinct thing. It's not just vagary. It's, but, um, it's, it's kind of a place we come up against and can, and, and can't go much further in terms of explaining it, but we can, we can worship God, we can accept it and we can wonder at it and reflect on it forever. Um, I mean, that, I mean, that's the, that's the, how I understand mystery in, the, in that context. But yeah, any other thoughts on that? Or just yeah, I just like, I, I, what you say vibrates with me in the sense of when not so much the great uh, early discussions of of, of, uh, of the early church coming into the Nicene Creed, but but more much later when you have people who now, who now have a, a theological system for everything, and everything must fit into that system. And details must fit into that system. And all the ethical yeah. details have fit into the system. Yeah. And if they don't, the whole system falls apart. Right. Yeah, 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 and yeah. you lose everything. Yeah. And, and that way, it becomes something socially, interpersonally abusive yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and destructive. And exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter. Yeah. And I mean, maybe so the, the kind of thing you're referring to, the new one, one Yeah. One thing you're saying about... It's funny... You, Throughout the lecture, you, you often seem to differentiate between ambiguous and vague, mm-hmm. even though they can be very synonymous in a lot of literature, the two words, mm-hmm. you know. That's not what we're talking about at the moment, but mm-hmm. but there was a, uh, well, what I was saying about the, the heresies, um, there's a quote that I have been fl- reflecting on in the past uh, year or two. Um, mm-hmm. The mystery of being is the light of being, mm. in the sense that, like, as if mystery darkened, you know, mm. or, or made vague, like vague and dark, you know, the, language is language, you know what I mean? Say the quote again. It's not a Christian quote, mm-hmm. but the mystery of being is the light of being. The light of being. Light, as in, yeah. light. you know, solar or however. Yeah, yeah. Know. In the sense that, I think what the quote implies is just that, The very core of our existence, in a sense, is, is not comprehensible, mm-hmm. and yet it's everything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, of the things that we can comprehend. You know? mm-hmm. but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, that's, that, no, it's an interesting idea, I mean, I mean there, there's a hymn that's um, we sometimes sing on on uh, Monday mornings here, but I'm trying to remember which hymn it is. Uh, I think it's Crowned with Many Crowns. It's like a Wesley hymn. I know this one. Yeah. Um, it's talking about the angels in heaven basically turning their eyes away from from, from mysteries so bright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's this, this idea that like, whoa, this is the... This is the Lord who died and defeated death and is a human being and is the Lord of, of the universe. And it's like too much for the angels to take. And it's a mystery, but it's bright. So it's not, it's not this image of mystery being shrouded in darkness and, and, and confusion. And it's actually just a, a glorious thing that we can't comprehend. That I, but, but that actually sheds light on everything. And, that this, and Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton talks about that as, his understanding of mystery is like, if you can allow for these central mysteries within the Christian faith, 
he talks about them, if you allow them, that, that central darkness, in a sense, darkness in the sense that you can't explain them, mm-hmm. uh, they actually, as a result, shed light on everything. They make it, they make it clear how you're supposed to live. They make it clear, you know. <laughs> um, so I say the kingdom of heaven is just living, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just, um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's, I'm kind of, um, Lost my train of thought there, but that would get yeah. through you, sir. Yeah, Isaac had a question, but it might take us in a different direction. I don't know if anyone else had. John, do you have? I was going to take them in a different direction. Okay. Go ahead, Isaac. I was just curious if you um, uh, could speak just a, a short bit, a little bit about your experience as a musical artist in dealing with um, a frustration. Sometimes you hear artists talk about, which is you know, trying to create something that, um, or they've they, they created several things, and the, or the audience is attracted to one that to you seems kind of simple and, and popular, and but you, and you have this other stuff you've worked on that you feel like has got so much more you're trying to communicate, but you can't get people interested in that. And I'll give you just a quick example. So you think of it from the visual world, maybe you have an artist, a sculptor, yeah. who has found that people are really in prison love chainsaw carvings of animals, like the bears on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finds that they can sell those, and people just the wow factor of this giant bear, yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. animal they've carved. <laughs> yeah. And yet they have all this this, this abstract sculptural work yeah. behind the barn that they've been working on, and they can't get anyone interested in And that's the deepest love. <laughs> yeah. Right, and, and, I, and I guess, it's, you know, I feel like the hospitality... The, Taking to the, fa- the fact that there is this part of a lot of people, this wow factor, this childlike wow, is impressed with something that might be, by many artists, considered just content. Like mm-hmm. these days, a lot of artists are asked to produce content, people just yeah. consume. Content, yeah. Yeah, rather than something that might be more substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and just your personal experience with that. Yeah. Well, I. Um yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I wish I was producing content that people were just entertained by and consuming. I mean, that would be, be kind of a, uh, an uptick in my musical career. <laughs> I'm sure we've had an experience that something that... It's all... That the people I've, I've liked that you've been kind of like, yeah, I like that's great. I like how you like that, but I wish you'd like this other stuff. Yeah, too. I mean, it's something that people experience, I think, you know... Um, yeah, that was something I did like 20 years ago, but I've, I've been working on some other stuff since. No, no, no play me, old, play me that old song. Whatever. It's not that I've really had that experience. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm trying to think of an example in my own. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of oh, yeah. an exact example, but but I, in some ways. The the challenge for me, this may be taking it in a different direction, but the challenge for me is to, there's some stuff maybe that I'm working on that I want people to appreciate because it's so complex, doing all this stuff, you know. Yeah. But like, but actually, the, the what would really be an accomplishment for, for me as someone who tends to go that way is to write something that's really simple, mm-hmm. and but very, very well-crafted, mm-hmm. and that actually that I can say that was well crafted and it's accessible to somebody that's that, that, that's that's um, 
it's this weird thing. It's it's totally unquantifiable and relative, probably, but like a really good song lyric that's matched with melody and chords is kind of like feels inevitable without being formulaic or predictable. It was something fresh about it, and it also seemed like it had to be that way, you know. And some people write well that way, and some people try really hard to write something that's fresh, but it just seems gratuitous and complicated and and this. Um, or people just write really, really formulaic stuff that you could predict ten minutes before it happened, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I've heard this a million times. And so, but but to try to write something that um, yeah has the right kind of simplicity is really, really hard. And that that's something that I would that I long to be able to do better. Yeah, <laughs> something, yeah something Gillian Welch really yeah, I was going to say yeah. Gillian Welch is just yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that answers that, that gets at it doesn't really get at that point, but no, I, I, yeah. I, it brings out something that I think you know. I feel like a lot of times the inhospitality for inhospitals, inhospitality, but of, of um, the, some people feel and when approaching an artist's work or not feeling yeah. they can get or understand it. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, what you're talking about is sort of the problem on in our, the artist world side of feeling that they're creating something only for only those who are educated right who, who, uh, have the educated palate to understand sure yeah whereas that they're forgetting that like the wow of a, of a child the childlike wonder of something yeah. um mm-hmm. you know evoking that in somebody is just maybe is, is, is how you know yeah but, but, but also to challenge to, 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 to be somehow accessible to someone who's not already a, you know doesn't already have a master's in fine arts um, but also challenge, challenge them in maybe a good way too to, to expand them to something more than just entertainment you know you know what I mean like some, something that has more substance so how can also the, your great image of the imagination being like a caged animal and like asking people some of something somewhat but also realizing that, that we you know we've got this so much other stuff we've been watching the content this production yeah. that is created our imagination really so mm-hmm yeah, okay. I'm just gonna. Uh, Jonathan's been waiting for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of your bullet points at the end was just immediate opinion, and I, I think it kind of ties into what James Isaac was saying. So I'm um, doing a Bible study with a small group on Psalms, and one of the exercises was to listen to a song, right? So they, they put on a song on the TV and we're listening to it, and I'm kind of like digesting it. I, mm-hmm. I like I kind of like the song. <laughs> And one of the women in the group just burst out, this is an awful song. Like, and it totally, like, for me, it just ruined the moment. But, um. Did she say why she hated it? No, so it was a U2 song, and it wasn't a typical U2 song, so it just wasn't what she would want out of U2. Oh, okay. I see. But I like the song. I was enjoying it, and that ruined my experience. <laughs> <with the> song. <laughs> but, um, but that's an example of an immediate opinion, but mm-hmm. also I felt like it was kind of discounting the song, too, and I feel like a lot of people might just discount art altogether. Like, mm-hmm. they just don't even give it a chance. Mm-hmm. Like, not, not only was that an opinion, she just didn't give it a chance at all. Right, right. Like, like 30 seconds into a song, you can say it's awful. 
Or you can yeah. listen to the whole three minutes. Do you, do you yeah, see yeah. what I'm saying? Well, that's a long time to listen to something, though, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In this day and age. <laughs> I, I think Listening to a whole song is pretty impressive. Like, I feel like a lot of people just discount art. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, I'm thinking of like some of the some of the music maybe that I think most highly of that I'm like, wow, that's amazing. It's it's usually stuff that like first time around or the second time around I'm just like, uh, you know, it does, yeah. and it actually really good substantial work tends to take a while to digest and and to. To, to either feel like I have to come up with an evaluation of this or, or just to instinctively do it. I, don't, it's not, it's, I hate that. That's, that's, not, that's not the kind of thing that I like. You know? um, is to uh, pull the plug way too early. You know, it's just to walk away from something that may have a lot to offer us. I think that's mm-hmm. true. And, and even, yeah, just, just to even just categorize it and label it something <laughs> means that to some degree we, we stop engaging, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we do that to people. <laughs> we do that to our, we do it to, you know, uh, oh, you're that kind of person. Okay. All right. Whatever, you know. <laughs> but we do, I think we do it to art as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going off, I'm just like still working with this hospitality metaphor. And I think that's where having a guide can be so helpful. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to go to a stranger's house by yourself. Mm-hmm. No idea. I mean, people mm-hmm. do that all the time here, and it's always amazing. Usually, someone who's never been here before, I'm like, "Wow, like you're brave. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. We're so glad you're here." Because yeah. um, <laughs> it's pretty scary. But yeah. if you have a friend to go, you know, like yeah. go to the party with or whatever, yeah. you could be like, "Oh, I know some people I can introduce you." You know, yeah. it makes such a big difference. And I think mm-hmm. that's where someone who knows something more about kind of art something. Yeah. Maybe like a friend who helps you in. Like yeah. Opens the door a little bit wider. Totally, yeah. Understanding. That's a great that's a great extension yeah. of the metaphor because it's I felt that way with po- with poetry a lot being like, "Oh, thank you." Or or someone who understands classical music and walks me through a piece and like, "Oh." Yeah. You know, it's not that I didn't like it before, but I just there was some there's something inaccessible that is now accessible. Um, and I'm slightly less like, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the the word that comes to mind, the the reason why a lot of people just walk away from something without ever, ever really learning what it has to offer is alienation. I feel alienated from <laughs> this is speaking a different language. It's not for me. I don't know. I I feel inadequate and stupid when I'm standing before this painting because there's obviously something really important going on that I don't understand. You know, I'm done. And that you're right to have to have somebody. Who speaks the language? Yeah. yeah. What's your name? Sarah. Sarah. Hi. Um, I wanted to like, add to the time idea, um, and I'm I'm thinking about like um, this was a thought, but someone like once brought up the idea of like asking how long do you when you're at like a gallery, how long do you spend with a time period with a piece of artwork? I know mm-hmm. you said this before, because I can know a little bit. But um, I think that, like, when I go to, like, the museum, I'm on, like, this weird, like, speed course. And I'm, like, just, like, I get to all the galleries that I can and just, like, just see everything. But then, like, right, right, I think right. it's the difference that when, like, you sit with an actual, like, 
you sit with a piece of work for like a long time, it, it tends to like to grow and like you have that that time, mm-hmm. and then that's also like delaying putting um, like a point or like coming up with an opinion on something mm-hmm. that can like that. I think that time and like um, this like um, kind of scarcity like mindset that mm. there's just not enough time yeah. um, or having to rush because like. You're late to the next painting. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like, like running for a museum instead of like actually spending time. But like, but I think that kind of goes um, like this, this um, like need to rush and like to mm. like form opinions right away can be what often just like yeah closes the door. Mm-hmm. And also like in that kind of sense being willing to like think and speak and draft um, and not have to like have the decided opinion right away but to allow for changing your mind and like mm. having that like like for lack of like just for ease of word but like that grace to like mm. allow someone to change their mind and like or not allow but like be like comfortable with that mm-hmm. um, and like but also for yourself to be like, you know, I thought that, I, I thought I knew I, what I knew yesterday, mm-hmm. but I thought about it for a while, and, and this is what I think is, like, mm-hmm. what, I, what I'm, what i like, kind of thinking through right now. Sure, yeah. And, like, having that for yourself, but also for others. Mm-hmm. I think that can, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's, that's the way that really good art can work on us. Like, yeah. My first impression was this, but now I'm realizing that was actually just a superficial. wasn't necessarily wrong, but it was like that's not all, not everything that's going on in this. Yeah, there's a lot more. Lydia, did you have your hand up? Oh, I was just gonna go off what Esther said and just Mm. said also when you're coming to like if you if it helps to have a friend or something first like to come into a new environment also to be willing to ask like to keep extending the metaphor like be willing to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, just be. I think be like have that humility to be like, oh, I don't get this, mm-hmm. and that's okay, and maybe I need to like figure out someone who could help me mm-hmm. understand it or look for resources or yeah. just have that openness to mm-hmm. like it's not like a one or done like you have to understand it in that thirty seconds like right. like even like that like standing in front of something for a certain amount of time like you mm-hmm. could have to you could still stand for something in a certain amount of time and just still not quite have the tools sure. to grapple yeah. with it and mm-hmm. and. Realizing, like, no, I need to, I need yeah. to get help to understand a little bit more. Yeah. So. For sure. I, I had a sculpture teacher, yeah. give me this big, yeah. a sculpture teacher in contrast to what Esther was saying. His recommendation was go to this big museum and walk until you see something that really moves you and leave. Like, you, there's no point in trying to go to every single gallery, you know? Because even <laughs> yeah. if you do, like, it's often oversaturation for your own good, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't handle an entire day at the MFA in Boston. It's, like, too yeah, much yeah, for me. I'm yeah, fried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's better to go and look at a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Did someone else have a hand up here? Yeah. Dave. I was wondering if I could... There's a short Billy Collins poem. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if I could read because when we were talking about friends, this was like one of the first poems I ever read when I was like first getting into poetry, mm-hmm. and it's called an introduction to poetry. Mm-hmm. And Billy Collins, he's like one of the poet laureates of America, so he's like 
kind of like Superman poetry in America is very successful. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is maybe was like one of his wrist slaps for some of his readers who were like demanding answers from a lot of his poetry. Oh, so yeah. Okay. I didn't really know what to do with poetry because I was like, I didn't have answers for it, but uh, if that's okay, I'd like to just read it. Okay, sure, yeah. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against the tide. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of the poem waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they do is tie the phone to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. Now I'm eating it with a hose to find out what it really means. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> it's called an introduction to poetry. <laughs> To, to enter in and experience something rather than to like crack it, crack it like it's it's like yeah it's treating something as a problem to solve you know maybe in a way that doesn't yeah I mean that's just really powerful to me because it kind of makes me think of like is that what God is feeling when he's like he writes us and we're like what does it mean you know what I mean that's funny. God thinks of Bible commentaries, he means. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Fine, another one, fine. <laughs> well, I think I might call it a night. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.